Good morning, church. Brian, that may be the only good song that came out of the 80s. Just want to uh, say thank you to Adam this morning for praying for me. Uh, it's necessary. However, I did notice that I didn't make his rather lengthy list of things that he was excited about this morning. So as we draw near to the finish line of our two-plus-year story of Luke, there are a few things on my heart this morning that I'd like to share with you. Now, next Sunday, Pat will take us across the finish line with a glorious message of Christ that I can't wait to hear. As this will be my last message in Luke, I want to take a moment to publicly thank Matt and Brian, James and Levi, Pat, Dave, and Doug for the incredible blessing uh, that I've enjoyed excuse me, of studying and preaching alongside them. Your sermons, guys, have found their mark in my life. I have been caught up in your enthusiasm and love for Jesus, and I felt the sin-killing stab of conviction as you preached. So thank you for the countless hours you've spent in preparation and for for persevering when the darkness of doubt and fear certainly closed in in your preparations. I see Jesus in you guys. In equal measure, I want to thank the rest of the church body. It takes much more than a sermon on Sunday to be compelled to walk in faithful obedience to Christ. Each one of you are being used to bring the gospel to its full, life-changing, Christ-exalting fruitfulness in the rest of us. As your lives are lived in alignment with God's word and in obedience to Christ, you testify to the veracity of God's living presence among us more than any sermon could. You are a wonderful church, and I am very very thankful for you. I see Jesus in you too. My prayer is that whatever time I have remaining in this body, the Lord will destroy every stronghold in my heart that stands against him and pull down every idol that seeks to steal my heart from him. This is the work I believe the Lord is doing in me. And thank you, church, for being the tools the Lord is chiefly using to form Christ in me. I hope this journey we've been on in the Gospel of Luke has left you loving Jesus more today than when we began. May our hearts burn within us because we have walked with Jesus.
And that is the main point of today's message. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. It is eternal. And the fact that we have it available to us today uh, is because you have preserved it through the ages. There are many men and women who have shed their blood uh, that we could stand here this day and have your word before us. So, Father, I pray that your spirit who inspired scripture would illuminate our hearts and minds today um, from your word. And that in doing so, that as we leave here today, we will be just a little bit more in love with your Son, our Lord, the risen Jesus Christ. Amen. The passage that I was given this morning to preach is Luke 24, um, 36 to 49. Now, while I want to be faithful to that text, I want to reset the stage for us today by going back a little. Most of the events in chapter 24 appear to have happened in one single day, Sunday, the day after Passover, the day of the resurrection of Jesus. I don't want us to miss getting a more complete picture of that day. Some of these passages have already been preached and preached well. It's not my intent to re-preach them. It is my intent to remind us of them in such a way that we come to feel them like the headwaters of a mighty river, small as it begins, but growing as it moves along, gathering additional water until it is a mighty, beautiful river. So, with your permission, I would like to begin today with what appeared to be the end, the death of Jesus. In Luke 23, verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to the decision and the action of the Sanhedrin. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him, Jesus, in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. 
The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid, and they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. Now, you've undoubtedly heard the story of Jesus' death many times. In recent weeks, Brian did a great job of taking us through the Law of Moses and the Prophets to help us see not only that these events were predicted, but they were absolutely necessary for our redemption. Without the death of Jesus that day, there would be no effective, permanent atonement for our sins. Take away the cross, take away his death, and you and I today would be hopelessly lost and forever estranged from God. But today, we as believers rejoice in the cross. We sing songs about the glories of Calvary. We sing joyful songs about the cross. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away, it was there by faith I received my sight. And now I am happy all the day. Happy because of the cross. Well, these are appropriate songs for us to sing because we understand what Jesus accomplished through his death. That was not, however, the mood immediately following that dark, dreadful day, the day of the crucifixion. That day ended with the women who loved Jesus watching his body being laid in a tomb. As the sun set on that day, the disciples of Christ with what were surely heavy, grieving hearts, made preparations for the following day. It was a special Sabbath. It was Passover. Now, the day following Passover did not begin any better. Luke 24, 1 says, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. It was the women who had prepared these spices. spices, And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now these women rose very early on Sunday morning, intent on respectfully treating the body of the dead Jesus with spices and ointments. Back in that day, Bodies weren't embalmed as they are today. Immediately at death, the process of decay begins. Within a short while, the body would be too wretchedly stinking to be anywhere near. Do you remember the story of Lazarus? When Jesus commanded the stone that sealed Lazarus' tomb be removed, Martha said, Lazarus' sister, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. The herbs and the spices were intended for the body of Jesus that would have already begun to decay after three days. But when they got there, there was no body. The text goes on to say, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. 
And they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. In the small light of morning, the women expected to find a body. They did not expect to encounter these two men. They also did not expect to be the very first people to hear a post-Calvary, post-resurrection gospel message. They had heard the gospel from Jesus many times, but they had not understood. But this morning, the missing body of their Jesus was explained by the words that they were told. And on the third day, he will rise. These faithful women who had been with Jesus from Galilee, these women who had followed him and served him and now were intent on ministering to his body, these humble, loving, serving women were the first to hear that Jesus was victorious over death. He was not a dead man entombed there among the dead. No, he was alive. And returning from the tomb, they told these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them, the apostles, an idle tale, and they did not believe them. What do you see in this account? I see the message of the gospel of the risen Christ having a transforming effect on these women. The gospel message caused them to leave off their mourning and immediately seek to tell others. That is the pattern we see over and over, both in the scriptures and in life. When someone hears good news and believes it, they want to tell others. It is what my life should look like if I believe that what Jesus did was truly good news. Do you also see the response of the men? This, too, is part of the experience of telling others good news. They often reject it. That was the immediate response of the men there that morning. Let us not forget these were the 11 apostles, those who were the closest to Jesus. They had not believed the things Jesus had clearly told them was to happen, and, they, and now they did not believe the glad report of the women. But, the text tells us, Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So Peter rose and went to investigate their report of the missing body. Other gospel accounts tell us that John was with him. Luke tells us that having confirmed the empty tomb, Peter goes home marveling. 
The other Gospels provide a bit more information about Peter's day, but for the moment we'll stick with Luke's account. So at this point, the storyline makes a shift. Um, we've all seen that in movies and in uh, television programs. The camera cuts to another scene. And that's kind of what's happening here. Luke 24, 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things which had taken place. The two travelers appear to be following Jesus, followers of Jesus. They have been in Jerusalem during the Passover and either witnessed or heard from witnesses the accounts of what happened to Jesus in Jerusalem. Their seven-mile walk would have taken them about three hours. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. And the text says, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Now, these two men had been with the 11 apostles when the women returned uh, from the tomb. As they were walking, Jesus approached them and began walking with them. For reasons the text does not explain, they were prevented from recognizing him. The passage goes on to say, And he, Jesus, said to them, What are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? Now, don't miss the, don't miss the demeanor of these two. They were somber and they were sad. The question, stopped, the question that Jesus asked them made them stop in their journey. Cleopas responded with maybe the most ironic response imaginable. Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and aware of the things which have happened there in these days? Cleopas asked the question of the only one who did know what had happened. Jesus alone knew about the humiliation, the injustice, the pain, the suffering, and the wrath of God that had been visited on him in Jerusalem. Jesus alone knew the feel of death and the victory of defeating it. Jesus alone knew what a resurrected body was like. Jesus was the only one who correctly understood all that had happened. But in kindness and mercy, Jesus responded with a question. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word inside God and all the people, and how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him over to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all of this, is the third day since these things have happened. And also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women had said. But him, 
they did not see. Now their report was factual. There was nothing wrong in what they reported, but there was something missing. They knew what had happened, but they did not know why it had happened. And he said to them, O oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Notice that Jesus did not wow them with stories about what it was like to be nailed to a cross or to die or to come back from death. Instead, he took them to scripture and explained God's plan and purposes for all that had happened. This is a lesson for us today, church. Our experiences do not validate the gospel. The gospel is not a message about me and what has happened to me. The gospel is the story of how a holy God made a way for hopeless sinners like you and me to receive his mercy instead of his deserved wrath. The gospel is the story of Jesus. It is the scripture that affirms Christ and not me and not my experiences. And they approached the village where they were going and he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him saying, stay with us for it's getting toward evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then, then, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. He said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, and while he was explaining what? The scriptures to us. Now Jesus had given these travelers the information they needed to put the pieces together. They had still not truly seen Jesus. The hospitality they showed Jesus led them to sitting at the dinner table with him. For reasons the text does not explain, when he had taken the bread and blessed it, as he broke it, their eyes were open and they recognized him. And then he vanished. In verse 33, And they got up at that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered the eleven and those who were with them. They had left the eleven earlier, had traveled, three plus hours to Emmaus, had encountered Jesus, had sat at the table with him, had their eyes open, and they got up from the table, traveled seven miles back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples there what they had experienced. But when they walked into the room, what they were told is, the Lord has really risen and it has appeared to Simon. Then they began to relate their experiences on the road 
and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. Once again, we see the response when people hear the gospel and meet Jesus, and in doing so, really see him. It is very late in the day, but they undoubtedly get up and begin, or they immediately get up and begin the seven-mile trip back to Jerusalem. They felt an immediate urge to share the news that they had been with Jesus. When they arrived, it was they who were greeted with the news that Jesus had risen and had appeared to Simon. After hearing about Simon's encounter, they told the eleven of their own encounter with Jesus. And bear in mind, all that I have uh, recounted so far took place on Sunday. Resurrection Day was a long, busy day. In verse 36, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. The disciples gathered there that evening. They should have recognized something in Jesus' greeting of peace be with you. Jesus had previously spoken to them of the peace he would give them. The peace of Jesus drives away fear. In John 14, 27, Jesus is addressing the disciples and he says, Peace I leave you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And Jesus that evening said to those gathered, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Why were they troubled? Because they were not using the lens of Scripture and faith to make sense of what they were experiencing. They were using the perspectives that the world had give, given them. The world had not provided them with a category that explained a man being alive again after dying on a Roman cross. The only explanation available to them was that they were seeing a ghost, a spirit. And Jesus understood this. He gently helped them to get past their confusion. He said, see my hands and my feet? That is I myself. Touch me. For spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. To reach out and touch a flesh and bone body would have been sufficient, should have been sufficient, to rid them of any remaining notion that he was a disembodied spirit. But the text tells us that while they still could not believe it, because their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So we see them making a transition from fear to joy, but it was the kind of joy that was all emotion and no certainty. It was only when Jesus did the most human of things something he had done with them many times through their years together, 
It was when he took a piece of fish and ate it that their fears were calmed and their joyful emotions were matched with understanding. This was Jesus. Their Jesus. Jesus who had taken them, had been taken from them, was now returned to them. Jesus who had yielded his spirit to the Father on the cross was standing with them, body and spirit intact, eating a piece of fish. Their friend, their teacher, their Lord, their God was with him, just as he had promised them he would be. And as they settled, Jesus began to do what he had done with them from the very beginning. He began to teach them from the word of God. <clears throat> Pardon me. The text in verse 44 says, Now he said to them, These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That evening, Jesus connected the dots for them. He married all that they had seen and experienced to the eternal word of God. He took them through the entire Old Testament, and in doing so, he opened their minds. What an evening that must have been. To have the risen Jesus revealing the redemptive plan from the law of Moses to the prophets, and through the Psalms, is an experience I cannot help but envy. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning here in Jerusalem. As Pat might say, bam, there it is. That is the message that had the power to redeem sinners, to give life to the spiritually dead, to give hope to the hopeless, to remove a soul from this dark kingdom and make him a citizen of the kingdom of light. This was the gospel message. This was the point of all that Jesus had come to do. This was a kingdom-building message. This was the message that would knock down the strongholds of Satan. This was the gospel that would make those in spiritual poverty rich. The message that would set free those who were captive to sin. The message that would set free those who were oppressed by Satan. And this was the message that proclaimed the favorable year of the Lord. This was the message of Jesus Christ, the crucified Lamb of God, the risen Lord of life. And Jesus says, you are witnesses of these things. These disciples knew God's truth that evening in a way that they never had known or understood it before. God had sovereignly prepared them for three long years to be the validating, confirming, eternal witnesses of all that Jesus had done. 
They had walked with him, talked with him, had been perplexed by him, and watched him do the impossible. They had seen him heal countless people, raise at least two people from the dead, calm a terrifying storm, and walk on water. They had heard his unwavering wisdom in response to the relentless attacks by the religious elite. They had seen him cast out demons. They had watched him feed thousands. They had seen him die. And this very day, they had seen him alive again. And now they heard him explain it all from the word of God. They were his witnesses, and they had the message. They now had the words of life. Now they were to be the hands and feet and mouth of Jesus to the world. What Jesus was doing with them that evening and over the following days was the beginning of everything changing. The world was about to be turned upside down. Kingdoms were going to fall. It was the beginning right there that evening as Jesus fully revealed himself through God's word. And yet there was one thing they lacked. In verse 49, the text says, And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus gave them a command to remain in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father was sent to them. Now, many of you know what's being talked about here. We may feel like we're coming to the end of a story, but that's not so. Luke wrote this account that we have spent the last couple of years going through for a purpose. And you've heard, you've been reminded of that many times. But let me remind you once more from Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting to me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. So, that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. That is why Luke wrote this gospel. But Luke did not only write this gospel account. He also wrote the book we call Acts. And just as Luke began the gospel with a declaration of intent, he also began Acts that way. And let me read that to you, because I think it is so profound. This first account I composed Theophilus, he's referring to the Gospel of Luke, all about what Jesus began to do and teach. Did you get that? The first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until that day when he was taken up into heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles 
whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So even this morning, as we witness the baptism in water up here, they may mention the fact that as believers, it is the Holy Spirit that baptized us into the life of Christ. We are indwelt with the very living spirit of God himself. When scripture tells us that our bodies are temple of the Holy Spirit, that's a reference to the fact that if you are sitting here today and you are in Christ Jesus by faith, then God himself has taken up residence in you. That is the power, the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us that was missing and was to come um, to these disciples on that Resurrection Sunday. So that was the missing piece. The story of the fulfillment of this promise is recorded in the second chapter of Acts. And as we leave the account of these men that evening with Jesus, they're told to wait for something that was to come, and they were obedient. Ten days after Christ departed, they received what had been promised. And you could read all about it and what happened after the fulfillment of that promise in the first few chapters of Acts. Now, you and I, if we're in Christ, have already received what they were yet to have. And hopefully, today, the Holy Spirit was opening your mind up to the scriptures as we visited them. You and I are disciples of Jesus. We are also his witnesses today in 2023. Does this world in our time need the message of the risen Jesus any less than it did 2,000 years ago? You know the answer to that question. The command that Jesus gave to those disciples that evening continues to be our command today. It's a simple command. Take the message of the risen Christ into the world, our world, and do it now. It is a message of exceedingly good news. It is a message of eternal life in Christ Jesus. And we do not do it in our strength. We do not do it with clever tactics and fancy words. We do not do it through arguments and debates. We do it simply in obedience to our Lord in the power of his spirit. Now the question that I have 
for us this morning. Is what you've heard today really good news to you? Does your heart burn within you as you hear the words of Christ? Is the peace of Christ in your heart today because of this gospel? Does your joy in Christ compel you to tell everyone the good news of what he has done? That's a question each of us who profess the name of Jesus must ask ourselves. And if you answer no to these questions, I invite you to read about Jesus for yourself in the Bible. The Gospel of Luke is a great place to start. The scriptures are enough to help you come to know and to love him. Or you can talk to me or one of the preach team or one of the elders. We would be delighted to speak with you about Jesus. But if you already know him and your heart has grown cold, the remedy is exactly the same. If these things you heard today are boringly familiar, then I encourage you to spend time in God's word. There you will encounter Jesus afresh. It is there the Holy Spirit will meet you, open your mind to the joy of knowing Christ, and rekindle an unquenchable passion for Jesus. I pray this morning that each of us here today will now and always find our deepest joy in Jesus, the risen Lord. May his name be exalted forever. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen.